It's the Todd Ortloff Show on News Radio KONP. Now, here's Todd. And welcome to the program. Uh, always great to talk with a local author. And uh, today we're talking with one that uh, I think many of you are familiar with, with her work for many, many years with the Peninsula Daily News. And that is Diane Urbani Delapaz. Well, uh, Diane is just out with a nonfiction book, which is really intriguing and uh, actually inter- intertwines her own uh, life story as well as uh, with her uh, in-laws' uh, life and love story as well. Diane, it's great to have you on and uh, congratulations on the new book. Thank you, Todd. It is, it is so thrilling. <laughs> uh, and, and we'll get into a little bit about process as well. But, I, you know, I, rather than me talk about this book, I, I guess I might just have you um, talk how, how you ended up deciding to write this book, which really is the love story of your father-in-law, essentially. Yes, yes. And I never got to meet my father-in-law, but he was an amazing man who, as a very young man, he enlisted in the army it was october 1942 that he enlisted and he hoped to become an electrician or an engineer far behind the front lines and um so then he uh went off to to um various bases across the united states and then immediate not immediately but um ultimately went over to England on the Queen Mary, when the Queen Mary was a troop ship carrying 15,000 men. And um, in 1944, he um, became what's called a replacement in the infantry. (laughs) So he went straight to the front lines in France and bloodiest campaigns um, in northern France. And then just when he thought um, he was going to be able to go to a rest camp for about a month, Um, Hitler sent um, a a barrage of soldiers over to Belgium to try to block the port of Antwerp, to try to block all the supplies coming into the the Allies through that port. And um, that became the Battle of the Bulge, which was the worst battle of World War II in terms of losses. So my father-in-law, Don Lusk, was a replacement in the infantry that went off to fight the Nazis in the Battle of the Bulge in November and December of 1944. But uh, so the whole time, sorry. Yeah, no, it's uh, all right. You're going to continue with what my next question was. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. So um, during this this um, period of years that he was in the army, Don wrote. Um, about 400 letters to his beloved girlfriend, then his fiancée, and then his wife, Anne, who was in Battle Creek, Michigan, working at a military hospital. And I actually got to read those letters. So they were so romantic, Todd. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Enough so that you wrote a book about it, right? I mean, you know, there were, (laughs) I think that might be suffice to say and and fair to say that, uh, oh, and I, I, you know what, I think we might have just lost Diana. Uh, looks like our connection might have went on. Okay, well, I'll tell you what. We're going to get uh, her back on the line. And uh, poof, just like that, technology took her away. <laughs> right? We were going to get to the heart of it. We're going to talk about what were in these letters. And then a bit about the uh, story of her love story uh, that uh, is intertwined in how she put this book together. So we'll, we'll get uh, reconnected with uh, Diane uh, Urbani Delapaz in just a moment. 
All right. Well, we're going to go back to the older technology and get to Diane on the phone. Sometimes, you know, the best things fail us, uh, but uh, we got you back. All right, Diane. We'll go We'll go via phone. So where, where we were rudely interrupted, uh, we were just talking about kind of those 400 or so letters that you got a chance to read. In the, and as you pointed out, they were just so romantic. So tell us, uh, I guess, uh, maybe uh, give us a hint as to what was in that. And it certainly probably illustrates a different time where, uh, you know, letter writing was was an art. That's what people did back in the day. Right. Well, and, and Don was just pouring out his heart in yeah. letters, you know, and, and um, it really demonstrated to me how, how powerful letters are. And, you know, and I have nothing against email. Um, it's just, it's a way to like to show your recipient, you know, what's in your heart. And um, it. It, it's what got him through some really awful times during the war, you know, writing those letters and thinking about the future that he, that he looked forward to with his with his wife. And, and they're in the book. I mean, you don't have all 400 of them, but you have many excerpts in this book of uh, kind of what the writings were like, and they really are. I mean, they're very heartfelt, and, and you can kind of really get a, a sense for, I mean, there were times where he was pretty scared. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right, he didn't let on too much about that, you know, and I and I only included like the, just a few pearls from among right. the letters, um, but but yeah, you know, and he just he kept talking about you know the the, the things that they were going to do when they were back together yeah. again, he and yeah. his wife. So yeah, and you know, and he actually made jokes about like, oh, and the first time I got straight, I yeah. was, <laughs> I mean, I was, you know, he was changing his clothes. And he said, you know, it's hard to look like a hero when you, you know, when you got your pants down kind of thing. <laughs> so this inspired you to kind of put this uh, this book together and uh, the name of it, All My Love, which I think is a, a perfect uh, thing. But now what you also did is you intertwined kind of your love story into this as well. Tell us a bit about what made you uh, uh, kind of put put two stories together. Although I have to say, you know, you don't make one outweigh the other one, certainly in, in the way the book is, but you do go back and forth between you and when you, uh, you know, met your husband to be. Right. Thank you. Um, yeah. All my love was the way Don signed most of his letters, you know, so that was, became an obvious title for me. But um, the, the first date that I went on with Don's son, Phil, who's now my husband, um, he actually showed me one of those letters, <laughs> and yeah, <laughs> no, that's that's you know, that's a big gesture right there. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I mean, we kind of we had known each other. Right. Phil and I had known each other for for a few months before we actually went on a date. And he, but he's a cards on the table kind of person. You know? yep. <laughs> so, um, he said he, he said later, you know, I brought my A game to that date, <laughs> <laughs> and um, he showed me one letter, and he kind of read it to me, and and I just thought, oh gosh, it was you know so romantic. And then you know, much much later, I got to I got to open up the file box where he had carefully you know categorized all the letters by year. So mm-hmm. I got to read the whole saga of wow. Don. Like when he met Anne, and then um, and then when he was, you know, when he received his orders, you know, to 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 go, you know, to report to the army base, mm-hmm. and then and then he went when he went over to Europe and and everything, and and it's just incredibly intimate um, thing to read somebody's letters like that. Now you didn't get. I mean, these were Don's letters. How did? Do we know much about Anne? I mean, did you get a chance to get to know what the, you know what that was like from her perspective? That's a great question. 
Unfortunately, her letters did not survive the war, but she had kept some letters that her friends had written to her. And um, she worked at a hospital called Percy Jones Hospital in Battle Creek, Michigan. And it was where wounded men were sent from both theaters, from the Pacific and European theaters during World War II. And she had a bunch of friends that she worked with there. And they wrote her letters later. You know, so I got to know her through those letters. You know, her, she and her friends just really just adored each other. You know, and it was so sweet to see how they supported each other. But, um, but I also used um, a website called newspapers.com mm-hmm. to look up um, the newspaper articles that ran when the letters were mailed um, by Don. So I could tell, like, what was happening in Battle Creek, Michigan, where Anne lived, when Don was writing her those sure. letters from Europe. The uh, so, we yeah. and we should point out that uh, you know Don did make it back. They got married, <laughs> so there, was, yes, so there yeah. was more to it than just the the, the war chapter as well. But uh, unfortunately, though, Don he died kind of young, didn't he? Because of a of a, a brain aneurysm, I understand. That's right. Yes, that's right. Which is, um, I, I guess, it's safe to say it's a hereditary right. thing. You know, so so Phil also had an aneurysm, but he was fortunate enough to have it. Um, surgically fixed, <laughs> yep, right. you know, so, um, so that, you know, it was, it was an interesting um, turn of events and everything, but, um, but then Phil's son, who is named after Don, came and um, helped take care of Phil after he had that surgery, you know, and he is just the most wonderful person, you know, so it kind of a, was a full circle thing. Exactly. Yeah, right. And that was the reason I brought it up is I think, uh, you know, even in the, the final chapters of this this memoir, I won't call it a, it's a memoir, it's, it's still to be had. Mm-hmm. There's still more chapters to go with this thing, I'm sure. Um, it's it very touching, uh, uh, the whole full circle thing as well. Uh, so I have to ask you, because I've known both you and Phil for a long time, uh, what was <laughs> the thought? Did you pitch this to Phil as an idea for a book? How did it come together? Tell us about that part. Oh, yeah. Thank you for asking. <laughs> yeah, I, oh, I started talking about it pretty early on, and, and I talked about it for years. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then as so, as so many people, you know, have experienced during the pandemic, I had more time at home to actually do it. And, um, you know, Phil encouraged me the whole time, and and another another big part of this is that we actually got to travel to Luxembourg and France, right. where Don actually served, and we saw the places where he was. Um, and you know that was very moving. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, yeah, and and then you know we came back, and and I I was continuing to talk about the book, <laughs> you know? and then finally in in 2020 I actually. Um, started writing it in earnest and I had a group of friends who whom to whom I read the chapters you know and then I finally you know got it together in 2022 <laughs> You know what's really unique, and of course your background is in journalism, so you always write you know, your nonfiction is a, is a thing, but this is a different kind of thing. And to write a nonfiction book that is a romance tale, basically, <laughs> that is yeah, part yeah. and is very close to you, that has to have been kind of a strange place to be writing from, I, I would think. Yeah, it was. It was different. That, you know, and, and one of the reasons I self-published, to be brutally honest, is because I wanted to do it my way. Mm-hmm. I didn't want an editor from a big publishing house telling me how it should be done. You know, I really believed in telling this story 
my way. <laughs> you know, having been a journalist for many years, I know like how a story, you know, needs to have a dramatic arc. And, and I just had a vision of how I wanted to tell it. Uh, you've uh, always been a tremendous feature writer. I, I guess this might be considered, what, your ultimate feature story? <laughs> yes, thank you. Yeah, thank you for saying that. <laughs> All right, yeah. so um, how long did it take you to, you, you, you got in earnest, started writing this in 2020. Did, did it come together pretty quickly for you after that? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I read a lot of um, newspaper articles around the letters, uh, around the dates of the letters. And then I had to put it together in such a way that I was telling the two stories, you know, of mm-hmm. Phil and me and of Dawn and Anne. And, um, you know, and I, I kind of wondered if it would work because we were jumping around so much across time and across countries. <laughs> but, um, but I feel like it did work. And, and, you know, my friends have told me that it, that it works pretty well. Yeah, I, I think uh, so it, it works, know, it yeah. took me two years to, to finish it. Not bad, not bad. Uh, is this the first uh, effort at a, at a book for you? Yes. <laughs> yeah, after yes. all these years of writing all these other things, this is the first time you've done an actual book, which I, yeah. Right. Um, uh, which well, is, I didn't have the time or the mind space. <laughs> uh, right, yeah, and I think a lot of people will tell you the same thing. There's a lot of writers out there that uh, just don't have the time or the spot to uh, sit down and actually do it. So perhaps maybe a bit of the pandemic helped uh, in that sense. I know it did some, many other people in getting books out uh, as well. Yeah. What do you hope people will take away from this if they, when they read it? I mean, it's just a tremendous great you know love story and again i i guess i have a little bit of a bias to it because i know the characters or at least a couple of them <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh thank you yeah well i hope that people um understand how powerful a heartfelt letter or email it doesn't matter what format it's in really mm-hmm. to me how how powerful that is and how you know you may think that you don't have much to write about and that's what don said in a lot of his letters. I don't have anything to write about. There's no news. But then he would go on to talk about their future, mm-hmm. you know, and, and um, I just I, I want to encourage people, including myself, you know, to to share our, you know, our heartfelt feelings through letters, emails, whatever. Um, and then um, to also remember that, you know, during during the war and during many other eras in, in our history, people went through really tough times. You know, and they got through it by um, by communicating with each other and expressing their hopes right. for the future. You know, one of the interesting things to think about in the 1940s, you'd send off one of these letters and, uh, you know, it would take weeks to get to wherever yeah. you were sending it to. You know, we're so instant right now. Um, yeah. <laughs> it, it, way different kind of way. And, and, and maybe that's why people were very... Uh, I don't want to say careful, but but purposeful might be the better word in in what they wrote. Mm-hmm. Yes, right. <laughs> maybe so, maybe so. But you know, Don didn't have a lot of time to yeah. write his letters, and he wrote postcards as well, like on his knee <laughs> when he was out <laughs> in the field somewhere. You know, so it's just a matter of doing yeah. it rather than not doing it. <laughs> right. This is a totally unfair question. You probably can't answer it. Do you have? A favorite letter out of all of the ones that you read? Uh, you know, you, there's some 400 of them, but it, is there one that really stands out? Oh, that's a great question. No, thank you. The Christmas letter, Christmas 1944. Okay. You know, it just still makes me a little choked up to, to look at it. So do you have, yeah. I, I don't know if you've got it, uh, did, get, encapsulate that letter for us, I guess, if you could. Oh, I've got it right here. Oh, well, let's hear it then, okay? <laughs> yeah, Okay. 
Christmas 1944 in Luxembourg. My darling wife, having changed addresses and countries since I last wrote you, this damn German counterattack sort of messed up our plans a bit. I'm thinking of you a lot this Christmas Day, so darned far away. Hope that next year conditions are far better for us than this year. It's hard for two people as much in love as we are to have to be separated this way. Sure hope you are having a good time today. At least, honey, I'm fairly happy to know that you're home where it's safe and that you're no longer in danger. You're, no, you're in no danger from bombings or the like. Don't worry about me as I'm still alive and as long as I'm in that condition, things are okay. Merry Christmas and all my love, Dawn. Oh, my goodness. I mean, and yeah, that's very purposeful writing, as I just pointed out. Yeah. Oh, my yeah. goodness. Uh, I mean, he was out in the snow in the woods in Luxembourg. <laughs> yeah, you have to realize, that's what I was going to say. We're talking about a guy who's in winter in Europe, northern Europe, right? Yeah. And uh, this yeah. is uh, yep. <laughs> yeah, not the, uh, not and, the uh, nicest of conditions. And miraculously, the Army got the letter to Anne because <laughs> she still had it, you know? Yeah. Decades exactly. later. Amazing. Did they settle back in Michigan after all was said and done? Is that where they ended up? Well, fortunately, um, Don worked at General Motors for a while at, in Michigan. And then um, he got a job, you know, after a few uh, different jobs, he got a job with the Apollo program with NASA. And so they got to move to Florida. And he got to be part of the team that sent up the, the rockets the moon. <laughs> How about that? So that was exciting. Wow. What a, what a great life. I mean, uh, unfortunately, kind of a little bit short, uh, but boy, uh, there's quite a bit of experience in, in uh, Don's life, certainly, and I can see why you, you were pretty inspired to write it uh, as well. And uh, I, I'll just say, this uh, book, can we get it locally just about everywhere, if I understand right? It's all out now, right? Yes. Port Book and News okay. has been really generous in um, putting it on their shelf. <laughs> All right, so pick it up. It's a great read. Uh, you know, it's a it's a it's not going to take you long to read it at all because you'll get engaged, engrossed in it, and off you'll go. And you can read uh, some examples of the letters as well as kind of the two love stories intertwined, if you will. Uh, Diane, congratulations again on the book, and thanks for uh, sharing a little bit with it. Good luck. Thanks, Todd. I really appreciate it. All right, it. all right. We're going to take a break. We'll come back uh, with more on our program right after this. Back to the program. According to a recent investigation by the New York Times, hundreds of airstrips have been secretly built all across the Amazon rainforest. It helps fuel illegal mining in Brazil. Hundreds of them have been built on protected indigenous territory. It's destroying lands and threatening people. The mining has led to the pollution of rivers and deforestation of the Amazon, which is one of the world's largest carbon sinks. Manuel Andrion is a writer for the New York Times Climate Forward newsletter and was a leader in the investigation at the Times. ABC News producer Leighton Schneider spoke with her about it this past week. So why did you and your team decide to investigate these illegal airstrips? So uh, this idea started at the at the network, uh, UDPOC. Potter, who is a reporter from The Intercept Brazil, uh, who has been investigating illegal mining in the Amazon for many years, came to us with this idea. And we realized 
that it was the perfect way to show what's stopping the government from fighting this crisis. Because when we think about illegal mining, and you'll see in the story, we're talking about many thousands of miners in remote areas of the forest. When we talk to law enforcement, they're like, how are we going to prosecute for 40,000 people? It's really hard to stop uh, illegal mining that way. A big part of this article was the effect that these illegal mines are having on the indigenous community. So what did you find? What happens is they these these communities, first, they're getting their natural resources completely depleted because because this this type of mining is done on riverbeds it destroys the rivers that they rely on and then uh, the mercury that they use poisons the water and the fish mostly that they depend on so they eat this fish and they become sick uh, and this mercury, you know, it doesn't go away for like 100 years. It's a it's a really serious problem that's going to affect, you know, children from developing. We barely know um, how how much this is going to harm these communities. So you talk to a lot of federal police officers and government officials in your reporting. So what do they say is the best way to counter all of this illegal mining? What they say is that they need to be more present right? They can't just go in there, arrest a few people and leave. There need to be officials present at all times or for big, like long stretches of time because the miners don't leave, right? Like they're still there. So the police needs to be there too. And all the, all, you know, healthcare officials need to be there. So it's a lot about presence presence so they can take care of the airstrips that the government uses or else the government can't land because the miners won't let them. So police officials told me like if the if if the military were able to control the airspace and and so stop these planes from coming in and that would mean you know intercepting planes that are flying legally for example and cracking down on the airstrips that they use to take off to the indigenous land. If that happened they would severely limit the amount of people and supplies going to these uh, lands. They did this once in the 90s when a similar gold rush sent lots of like thousands of miners to these lands. And when they managed to stop the air traffic, miners left by themselves because they were going hungry in the forest. This is the Todd Ortloff Show on News Radio KONP. In this segment, uh, morning of November 4th, 2019, an unassuming caravan of women and children were ambushed by masked uh, gunmen on a, a desolate stretch of road in northern Mexico. It was an area uh, controlled by a drug cartel. The attackers killed uh, uh, nine people in this uh, attack and injured uh, five more. The victims, members of the Liberon and La Mora uh, communities, fundamentalist Mormons, whose forebears broke from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints church and then settled in Mexico uh, when the church outlawed polygamy in the late 19th century. 
And uh, it is an ongoing story, still being investigated, but there is a new book out from uh, investigative uh, reporter Sally Denton called The Colony, Faith and Blood in a Promised Land. And we're going to talk with Sally for the first segment today uh, about that book and kind of what she has found uh, in investigating what happened there uh, that day in uh, 2019. Sally, thanks for joining us. Good to have you. Thanks, Todd, for having me. So first, before we start, let's go back, uh, refresh for uh, our listeners what happened there in in 2019. And then, if you will, illustrate for us a bit about uh, the yin and yang, if you will, between uh, the drug cartel and and these communities that were there of of Mormons. Uh, Well, as you mentioned, the book starts with the mothers and nine of their children, Uh, and the wounding of several other children in a very remote part of northern Mexico uh, that most Americans uh, have never really even heard of. The massacre took place in Sonora, outside uh, northern uh, Sonora state of Mexico, uh, not far from the Arizona border. Uh, But a lot of the uh, victims were also from Colonia Laveran, which is in Chihuahua, uh, south of uh, Texas and and the New Mexico border, um, the I was moved emotionally by the tragedy initially and thought it was important to uh, to take a look at what really happened. Uh, women and children, uh, as you mentioned, they were uh, belonged to a fundamentalist sect that had broken away initially from, uh, I mean, descendants of those who had broken away from the uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in the in the uh, late 1800s, uh, late 19th century, the 1890s. And um, so they had lived in these, um, La Mora in Sonora and Colonia Labaran in Chihuahua. And I just, I, uh, the more I looked at the events and the characters involved, the more intrigued I became and sought to dig deeper into their murders and their relationship right. with the history of uh, sometimes sordid history of polygamy in that region and in the southwest U.S. And I took off where the initial reporting left off, the initial reporting, the front lines reporter, reporting by the journalists at the scene of the massacre was really first class. Um, and I took off to, to uh, basically... I wanted to draw more context and uh, a more comprehensive portrait of of the not just the crime itself, right. but the backstory that included the drug cartels. And we all, you know, I think most of us remember the uh, frontline reporting of that and just, uh, you know, what a tragedy and how shocking it was because it was gruesome. Uh, it was a drug hit, if you will, uh, and it involved these children as well. And I think that just, you know, had... You know, for any human, a lot of reson- it resonated uh, as a story, as, as something that's just awful. Tell us a bit, though, about um, the relationship, if you will, between those uh, families and, and the cartel. Because if I understand this right, uh, you know, there had been, uh, they'd, they'd worked around and with each other for many, many years. Well, the relationship between the, the colonies and the cartels, I mean, the colony, Colonia LeBaron, which is what the book is about, it focuses right. on uh, the colony in, Guadalu- in uh, um, Chihuahua, not the one in, not Lamora and Sonora, uh, but that colony had existed, coexisted with the cartels and uh, coexisted with drug traffickers in the area long before there even were cartels. And the, the timing of the massacre of the women and children really 
um, coincided with the incarceration of uh, El Chapo Guzman, uh, Joaquin Guzman El Chapo, who had been uh, in control of the region for 30 years. And this is the largest, um, richest drug organization in the world. And so it was, uh, he was incarcerated in July. This happened in November uh, 2019 at a time when there was a great rivalry and, and uh, a war going on for uh, who was going to control the region. The road that they were on was not just a, a, uh, one of the most dangerous roads in the world right now, uh, but it was a, a, a um, transportation route into the United States from Mexico for narcotics, methamphetamines, uh, heroin, um, marijuana, and live humans, human trafficking. And it was also one of the main conduits from the United States into Mexico with uh, for weapons. And the, the guns flooding from America into Mexico and the drugs flooding from Mexico into the U.S. Uh, routinely trafficked this road. And so what I was, I think, uh, what I wanted to know from the beginning is why were there these unarmed women and innocent children on that dangerous road in the first place? And the men were, you know, this is a, these are two uh, uh, fundamentalist um, colonies that uh, are, are directed by patriarchal leaders uh, from the fund fundamentalist uh, offshoot church. And I just w couldn't figure out, you know, who lets their wives and children yeah. drive into a, a vicious drug cartel war, cartel war unarmed and, and um, uh, unescorted. In, in the past... Question, had, where were the it, men? Yeah, exactly. I think that was a big question a lot of folks had, is that how does that happen? Because as you just talked about, this isn't like... You know, I mean, th this this sort of trafficking and drug cartel stuff, all of this criminal activity had been happening through that region for years and years and years. They well knew of the danger that was going on in there. And I, it, suffice they to well say. knew and yeah. they had, in fact, been warned the night before. So, OK, uh, and it was not a matter. I mean, what became clear from the beginning is that this was not a matter of identity. This wasn't, you know, yeah. wrong place at the wrong time. These women and children were targeted. So the question is, you know, who had an axe to grind with the LeBarons and why? And that's what I really have been looking at, kind of the mm -hmm. uh, not merely the crime itself, but the backstory that included not just the drug car cartels, but um, there's a death struggle going on over precious water resources in that arid right. region right now. And um, if you've read the book, The Presence of the Sex Cult Nexium, and politics on both sides of the border. It's a it's a stunning it's very complex. <laughs> it's very interesting. Yeah, it's a lot more than what just simply looked like a drug hit, if you will, uh, that uh, yes. that we saw reported uh, certainly, and that's why we have you on the show today to talk about the colony a, a bit more about it. Did you find any any you know what 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 have you discovered in in your investigation of this as to why this happened the way it did? Well, it was clear, as I said, it's clear that somebody was sending a message. I had the I lucky um, and uh, to develop some deep inside sources within the cartels um, on both sides of the law, inside international drug enforcement and law enforcement, also on both sides of the border, as well as uh, sources within the sisterhood 
women within the colony, many who, <clears throat> excuse me, many who, of whom had escaped earlier, um, many of whom were trying to get out of there now, and um, uh, many of, of whom had already fled to the United States, some of whom are living in the polygamous colonies of, of the southwestern U.S. So what I think what I was, you know, what I was able in the end to really answer uh, was that there were a lot of uh, issues. And uh, to me, by the end, it really, I felt uh, like murder on the Orient Express or Chinatown when you started delving into the different possibilities and motives. Uh, there were several. There were, you know, there's a lot of people, as I said, fighting for these uh, precious resources from uh, especially water, but other uh, natural resources in the region that believe that the LeBaron family has been appropriating the water and reducing the water table for the indigenous mm -hmm. neighbors. And it's not just the, uh, uh, not just the cartels, the drug cartels that they're um, competing with, but uh, other agricultural empires and, from uh, the agave people with uh, for the tequila, for the avocados, uh, for methamphetamine, for po uh, the poppies, for um, marijuana. It's a crossroads. And it's a cautionary tale for, uh, I mean, this is just, you know, slightly across the border from the right. uh, southwestern United States. Right. So it's quite a cautionary tale. Do you believe that... Um Two questions. Did you find any traction or any direction as to why those women and children were out there unguarded, if you will? Question one. And then secondly, in what you just illustrated there, are we entirely sure that this wasn't um, a collaborative hit, if you will? Not just that you maybe the cartel carries it out, but they're doing it as a message from other people that were in the region, from agave farmers, for, you know, whoever that might be. Well, the first thing that we know that the women and children uh, were traveling, they were going from Chihuahua, from Sonora to Chihuahua for a wedding. So they were, um, it was a personal, uh, you know, jaunt yeah. by okay. all accounts. But um, so why, uh, why there was no protection? These, these families um, in that region are notoriously guarded 24-7. Right about why they were not guarded is um, uh, unanswerable um, the, and, and, um, and, and mystifying. Um, as to whether or not it was a coalition, it seems mm -hmm. obvious that it was a coalition. By some accounts, there were 100 hitmen. Wow. It is such overkill. And I have you know, sources within the cartels that, especially if you're going to you know, send a message to somebody in the LeBaron family and you're going to kill um, three women and, chil and uh, six children, uh, that doesn't take 100 men, yeah. especially yeah. if they're unarmed and, and you could see from, you know, they weren't uh, uh, clearly as women and children. But down there, the coalitions that exist between um, you can't always separate the cartels from the, the local government, from uh, the farmers. A lot of those people have been working for El Chapo Guzman for uh, decades. Everything, you know, in upheaval and uh, fighting for these precious resources, mm -hmm. including the drugs. Uh, there's a lot of uh, alliances and coalitions and factions 
uh, many of which right. were involved at different stages. I know you you spend a lot of time in in you know, water has played a big part in the story in this thing, as you just alluded to, you know, dwindling water supplies now, but this isn't the first time that's been an issue. That's That's been part of the story since, you know, decades and decades ago, correct? Right. They have been fighting over water, the LeBaron family, right. and uh, um, the they, their church from the uh, 70s and 80s, they've been fighting with their neighbors over water uh, dating back uh, decades. So this is not new. What's new is that, you know, with climate change, the supplies are dwindling and the stakes are getting higher. Entire community, entire communities are uh, contending that they don't have enough water, drinking water for their communities because of the saturation that the LeBarons uh, are using the water for their pecan trees, which take huge amounts mm-hmm. of water compared to other uh, agricultural uh, growing um Thing. So it's it's a it's a very tragic story, uh, and uh, I don't know where it's going to end. <laughs> yeah, as we mentioned, this is still under you know an investigation, if you will. One of the things you also illustrate in this book, and I, I want you to talk about this before we run out of time, is just the you know what it's like for those women in this um, culture. I guess give us give us a feel for what the women's culture is like in that colony. Well, I'd, it's not. That's another cautionary tale. If you want to look at what it would be like in the United States, if if uh, you know the uh, white patriarchy, patriarchal men were controlling everything, uh, this is a microcosm of that. There are the polygamous men generally have um, around five wives, between two and five, and sometimes more, uh, more in, in previous generations. But each of the 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 only I mean, polygamy is not legal in either the United States or in Mexico, but Mexico allowed them to come, as I said, in the 1890s, and they've had kind of a gentleman's agreement uh, with the polygamous colony since uh, since then, and um, only allowed, the only legal marriages are the marriages to the first wife. And so uh, it's, and the men generally have dual American citizenship. Some of the first wives do as well. But most of the wives down there, are the second and third and fourth wives, uh, they can't go back and forth across uh, into the United States at will. And most of them are uh, stay down in the colony and uh, bear children uh, from the time they're uh, childbearing age until they go into menopause. And during that time, uh, you know, they're they're pregnant and taking care of children. And so it's not that they have um, uh, much free agency. And many of the husbands are working in the United States with big uh, construction and drywall companies and in the oil fields and uh, send the money home to the colony. But it's the women and children who are holding down the fort. Absolutely, and and, uh, and one of as I said, one of the most dangerous places on yeah, the, that's, on the planet. Yeah, with that going on around them all the time, and uh, as you mentioned, yeah. the pecan farmers are nut farmers. So the women are doing most of that work, I'm assuming, uh, as well. Well, I think that the laborers, their the uh, their neighbors, their Mexican neighbors, are, are, are doing yeah. uh, most of the. Yeah, they're okay. doing the labor. 
Uh, one other thing, uh, t- the, the start of all of this, tell us about Irville LeBaron, uh, because I guess known as the Mormon Manson. Uh, so the, the, the root of this colony is not built on anything that's r- real peaceful, I guess. Well, no, uh, it's, I mean, the, the root of the colony is that the LeBarons, uh, the um, Almadera LeBaron, who settled the colony, yeah. Um, in the uh, 1920s, uh, descendant of somebody of you know his grandfather who had, who had settled there in the 1890s, but um, there was a, a family feud between five of his sons. Mm-hmm. Uh, Almadera LeBaron claimed that he had inherited the mantle of the one mighty and strong from descended down to him, Smith, the founder of the Mormon Church. And that's where the rivalry and the, the rivalries and the violence begins. There are five brothers who, um, Irville was one of them, and Joel was considered. They, these were mainstream Mormon men who did missions for the Mormon church. But um, as, as I said, the offshoot, uh, they were leaving their own church and there were rivalries. And Irville, uh, who killed his brother, had his brother Joel uh, who claimed to be the one mighty and strong, had him killed. Irville claimed to be the one mighty and strong. And the one mighty and strong is the one that's going to take over the world, include, including the United States. Right, right. And he went on a killing spree, and uh, which has been the subject of a couple of books yeah. in the past. It's very interesting. Are you surprised we're not, uh, maybe we're just not getting a lot of coverage of what has happened down there simply because of its location, but uh, just your thoughts about that as we wrap this up. Yeah, I I mean, I am surprised. Um, That's why I decided to look at it initially. This is my ninth book. I've written a Mm -hmm. lot. I write about organized crime and and drug trafficking. I've written two books on more. From the moment it happened, I could see that this was going to be a microcosm on a nexus between um, a lot of different elements. And other than, as I said, the initial reporting that was really phenomenal down there, the Mexican journalists are, are uh, you know, the top. Uh, there, the, the follow-up has been really unbelievably mm-hmm. quiet. And, uh, and even the Mexican government, they've arrested 50 people. Nobody's been... Uh, you know, actually tried or convicted, um, and nobody, as I, as far as I know, the last time I checked, had actually been arrested for the, the murders themselves. So, uh, you know, and even President, former President Trump, got involved and wanted to use the massacre as a pretext for invading Mexico. And even that, I would have thought, would have gotten more attention. <laughs> so it is surprising. Well, and, and I think illustrative, too, is when as we watched that story happen, how it impacted people. I mean, people got really fired up about the whole thing, and now it seems to have just kind of gone away. Yeah. Yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah, well, I agree with you. I, I encourage people to pick up The Colony. I've, I've read a little bit of it, uh, and uh, can't wait to get through the rest of it, uh, because it does give you a bit of a, the background and the inside and maybe the what's next in in what's happening down there. Sally Denton, it's been a pleasure having you on the program today. Thanks so much. I enjoyed it. All right. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more in just a moment. This is the Todd Ortloff Show on News Radio KONP.